0: I'm kind of worried about all these poor kids out there who don't sleep that great that are being put on this quite powerful hormone, which God only knows what the long-term endocrine effects, reproductive effects, those kinds of things are going to be down the road. You know, The pineal gland was an object of you know, biological mystery for quite a while. Lower animals it's actually a visual organ it has got a cornea a retina a lens they were still convinced of the utility of you know DMT as a tool you know psychological tool spiritual you know tool to expand you know their consciousness as it were if the pineal gland is responsible for producing dmt and if fluoride reduces the you know metabolic activity of the human you know pineal gland you know does that mean fluoridation is reducing mankind's capacity to experience spiritual states
1: You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on building optimal mental and physical performance into your life, visit naturalstacks.com. Ryan Muncy is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncy is the nutrition guy. Ryan Muncy out there trying to make the world better for all of us.
0: The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative,
1: entertaining, and epic.
0: Ryan Muncy is my go-to guy. Ryan Muncy
1: is the first guy I call. He's making people's lives better. Ryan Muncy is an innovator. All right. Happy Thursday, all you Optimal Performers. Welcome to another episode of the OPP. I'm your host, Ryan Muncy. Really excited about our guest today. We have Rick Strassman on the show. Rick, thanks for being here, sharing your time and your expertise with us
0: well thanks Ryan thanks for having me on your show
1: it's our pleasure if you're not familiar with Rick and his work we're gonna be talking about the pineal gland uh, which is sometimes called the third eye we're gonna talk about DMT the spirit molecule the pineal gland just as a, a quick primer is a tiny pine cone shaped gland in our brains sometimes it's called the third eye it has this mystical aura being the seat or the root of our spirituality with rick today we're going to examine the hard science and some of that mystical stuff if you will uh, regarding pineal gland and dmt a couple of housekeeping notes as always go to naturalstacks.com you will be able to see the video version of this along with links resources studies any of those rabbit holes that you want to pursue and further your knowledge based on the things that we talk about today please go to itunes leave us a five-star review If we read your review on the air, we will hook you up with free Natural Stacks products. So let's start with one from Kolia111, says incredible. Absolutely amazing podcast. Every single show has multiple techniques I can apply to every area of my life. And here's an email we received from Nadav. I've been listening to the OPP since day one. Huge fan, love what you guys are doing. Thank you guys for your support. Final thing, make sure you guys share the OPP. We talk about things that are designed to help you. We we try to give you actionable, implementable tips to help you increase the quality and length of your life. So if you find anything useful, if there's anything in here that you say, man, I wish so-and-so knew this, share this episode and the podcast itself with your friends and family so we can reach more people, help more people. That's how we build and grow this thing. Okay. Public service announcements are over. Rick, you are a medical doctor, psychiatrist to be exact. Uh, you're probably most well-known for writing the book DMT, The Spirit Molecule. You know, that book has sold over 150,000 copies already. You know this. I'm just telling our listeners. The book's also been turned into a documentary by Warner Brothers. That's kind of your bio on paper. Walk us through your background. How did you become who you are today?
0: Well, I mean, I was born and raised in uh Southern California in the 50s and the 60s. So I think that had a lot of influence on who I turned out to be and who I am. And I guess, you know, who I will be in the upcoming years. It was kind of an interesting, you know, cultural time. It was both quite conservative, you know, after World War to the baby boomers were being born. At the same time, there is a real you know, sense of can do. Anything was possible. Well, the Allies had won the war and America had emerged as the number one world power. A lot of people were moving to California because of work, because of the weather a lot of schools were sprouting up because of the GI bill so it was you know kind of in that environment that i you know, kind of arrived on the scene school was important the public schools in la were quite strong at the time my father was an electrical engineer worked for one of the major aerospace companies in la and was quite a you know science fiction buff there was a lot of you know talk in our home about you know, the role of, you know, science in determining human evolution and the future of the race combined with some rigor at the same time. So I was, you know, kind of brought up in an inspired environment, the combination of, you know, what's possible and what's not possible, you know, the importance of, you know, science in distinguishing between those two and pushing the envelope. So I, you know, went to college in California, ended up at Stanford. My last two years. And this was a very interesting you know, time on college campuses as well. There was an influx of interest in you know, meditation you know, from the East. And at the same time, there was also the influx of you know, psychedelic drugs on campus at the same time. So these were two relatively new technologies that promised to induce altered states of consciousness in a fairly you know, reliable way. Uh, you know, one of them was you know, coming at it from the perspective of taking something in and experiencing an altered state. And the other approach, you know, the meditative approach, was doing things to yourself which would induce an altered state and in my looking at descriptions of the two phenomena uh there's you know seem to be a large amount of overlap in descriptions of you know people experiencing deep states of meditation and those experiencing a psychedelic drug effect it was at a you know pretty early and formative age that i began to think about the notion of a, you know, biological basis of spiritual experience. There were, you know, parts of the brain that were being activated by both, you know, meditation practices and by the, you know, psychedelic drugs, which was responsible for the degree of overlap between those two, you know, sets of experiences. So I started to, you know, think about what kind of brain, you know, processes or what part of the brain might be involved in both the you know psychedelic you know drug state and that resulting you know from meditation? You know, my interest was initially drawn to the pineal gland, as you mentioned. Then began all of the training necessary to um, actually you know put those ideas to the test.
1: That's when your research really started. Was like in the seventies, right? On on pineal gland. I
0: spent a lot of time in school, actually. Uh, I, you know, graduated from college in, you know, 73, went to medical school until 1977, then trained in, you know, psychiatry till 1981, then, you know, took some extra training which ended in, you know, 1983. So it actually, you know, wasn't until, you know, the mid 1980s that I began doing the pineal research at the University of New Mexico.
1: I guess for our listeners who may not be as well-versed as you in the pineal gland. Let's start there. Let's talk about, you know, the, the biological definition, and then we'll get into some of that historical, mythical significance.
0: You know, the pineal gland was an object of, you know, biological mystery for quite a while, but that didn't keep, you know, people from speculating about its spiritual function or spiritual role. It's, you know, located just a couple inches below the top of the fontanelle that soft spot in the baby which seals over after a year or so. In lower animals, it's actually a visual organ. It has got a cornea, a retina, a lens, photoreceptors, those kinds of things.
1: So it is quite literally a third eye for some organisms.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, for reptiles, for amphibians, yeah, it's actually a third eye. And it's responsible for skin coloration and for temperature regulation in those species, so as animals climbed the evolutionary ladder, the pineal gland went inward, you know deeper into the skull. So in birds, the pineal is still responsive to light that goes you know, through the bones of the skull. You know, but in mammals, the response of the pineal to light is more of an indirect approach. It you know goes through the eyes. You know, then light information is transmitted to the you know, mammalian pineal through the eyes rather than you know, through the skull itself. It wasn't until the 1940s that people discovered melatonin. It was you know, first deemed as functioning to cause you know, blanching of skin. And then a few years later, it was determined to control seasonal breeding mammals like sheep. And in rodents, it you know was discovered that if you expose animals to light, it you know turns off the production of melatonin. And uh, if you expose an animal to constant light, the pineal gland shrinks. If you expose an animal to the dark, that increases amounts of melatonin. And if you keep an animal in the constant dark, then the pineal gland gets bigger.
1: So a couple of questions on that, that's really fascinating. We we talk a lot on the show about avoiding blue light after sundown and how that impacts our sleep. We know that that reduces our body's ability to produce melatonin. Is that because the pineal gland is sensing light through the eyes?
0: Yeah. You know, the frequency of light, which is optimal or the most effective at suppressing pineal melatonin is in the blue green spectrum. I think it's 430 you know, thirty nanometers is you know the most you know potent, you know, wavelength for suppressing melatonin. Melatonin is important in all manner of other regulatory kinds of processes. Immune function, circadian rhythms, night shift problems, jet lag, it seems to have some anti-cancer effects. Messing around with the you know, circadian natural production of melatonin is probably not a good idea. By the same token, people taking melatonin, especially in large doses at unusual times of day, probably isn't a good idea. You know, it's interesting. Pediatricians prescribe a lot of melatonin for kids who can't sleep, but melatonin is a potent hormone with reproductive effects and anti-reproductive effects, and depending when it's taken and the dose and you know the time of day, those kinds of things. I'm kind of worried about all these poor kids out there who don't sleep that great that are being put on this quite powerful hormone, which God only knows what the long-term endocrine effects, reproductive effects, those kinds of things are going to be down the road.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. You mentioned that We don't have as much data as we would like to have on the pineal gland. Why has it been sort of relatively unknown in the science or medical world for so long?
0: Well, we do know about, you know, melatonin function to a fairly large extent, you know, nowadays. When I was doing my studies in the mid-1980s, there wasn't that much, you know, known about the function of melatonin in humans, you know, so we established that is responsible for the trough in core body temperature, which occurs at three in the morning, corresponding, you know, to the peak production of melatonin naturally. So there is quite a bit of information out there regarding melatonin. The other spiritual or you know consciousness-related aspects of the pineal those have been relatively neglected and part of my interest in studying melatonin was to determine if it was also you know psychedelic if it produced you know psychedelic kinds of experiences everybody dreams every night if they remember them or not and you know dreams are a psychedelic experience that people enter into every day so it was tempting to think well if melatonin is psychedelic and you know there were some early data suggesting that in humans from the 60s and the 70s that you know melatonin might be psychedelic in high doses then it would be a neat tidy package melatonin is a you know psychedelic hormone it's you know produced every night it's responsible for the dream state you know those kinds of things but as it turned out Melatonin isn't especially you know psychedelic, even in large doses. I you know kind of had to go back to the drawing board and for other compounds that might be naturally produced, which might possibly be synthesized in the pineal gland, and you know that's where I started to you know find out about DMT and began to formulate my DMT
1: research. It's very interesting to me that well, it's not protected by the blood brain barrier. How is that? Make the pineal gland special or different?
0: I believe I've been corrected in the fact that the pineal is within the blood brain barrier, but it has its own extra layer of protection, especially from stress related hormones like the catecholamines of adrenaline and noradrenaline. There seems to be this extremely effective vacuuming mechanism near the pineal produced or turned on by the pineal which keeps it from any extraneous blood-borne catecholamines you know like adrenaline but at the same time the main neurotransmitter responsible for pineal production of melatonin is noradrenaline but that's released you know locally from nerve cells which impinge on the pineal gland rather than noradrenaline carried by the blood. So the nerve cells responsible for stimulating the pineal both release, you know, catecholamines, but also are protecting the pineal from any extraneous stress-related, you know, catecholamines that are carried by the blood. So that, you know, means that it's extremely difficult to stimulate pineal melatonin when it's not being stimulated by the body's own clock. There's a clock ticking all the time in the human brain and it's responsible you know, for the peak and the trough in you know, levels of uh, melatonin. So that is the you know, 99% responsible for pineal melatonin production. Anything else is you know, kind of you know, shunted aside. We you know, did an experiment in uh, the 1980s where we really you know, tried to stress people and increase their blood levels of melatonin. We drew blood levels of you know marathoners who had been you know running um, along the Sandia Crest east of Albuquerque. It's a mountain range which averages over ten thousand feet in the spring. So they were you know running through snow. I think it was a twenty-mile run, twenty-five-mile run. So even in, you know, that case, like unbelievable amount of stress, you know, the levels of melatonin may have gone up 20%, 30%. So even in those incredibly arduous, you know, physical stamina requiring conditions, you know, melatonin still didn't really move that much, you know, relative to the normal ups and downs, which occur every day due to the activity of the body clock.
1: That's interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely try to grab a link to that study and put it in the show notes for you guys listening so you can check that out if you want more information on that. Rick, one more question on on the pineal gland. When I was you know, looking it up and, and doing some research, I don't know if you want to call it part of the conspiracy theory of fluoride or not, but there are some folks who believe that fluoride can calcify in the pineal gland. What are your thoughts on this?
0: Well, you know, there is that urban myth. If the pineal gland is responsible for producing DMT and if fluoride reduces the you know metabolic activity of the human, you know, pineal gland, you know, does that mean fluoridation is reducing mankind's capacity to experience spiritual states? You know, there's a lot of missing dots within that scenario. Still, it's a question that I'm asked enough times that, you know, last week I even went online and started looking up, you know, some of the data on fluoridation, calcification of the human pineal, and its, you know, relationship to melatonin formation. You know, surprisingly, there aren't a lot of data out there. It is known, that, as people become older, their pineal glands get more calcified. You know that is known I mean it's also known that as people age, production of melatonin decreases. that begins at puberty, even melatonin you know levels begin to you know drop at puberty and continue to decline with age. Calcification increases with age, but you know there's a couple of caveats to the whole notion one. Is you know that the calcification isn't occurring in pineal cells themselves, the so-called pinealocytes. The calcification is occurring in non-pineal tissue in the pineal gland itself. You know, like connective tissue um, and you know supportive you know cells, which you nourish and you know support the pinealocytes. The calcification isn't in the you know melatonin you know producing cells themselves, but in uh, the surrounding tissue you know which has got a you know supportive role in pineal you know metabolism anatomy you know physiology. But there isn't a correlation you know at least as you know far as my cursory review the current you know literature between degrees of calcification and degrees in decrements of melatonin production and even less data seem to exist in you know the human with regard to fluoridation and pineal calcification so i couldn't really you know find you know too much out there on is calcification of the pineal more common you know more advanced pronounced in humans who live in areas of fluoridation of the water. It's still kind of a stretch. More speculative is, uh, you know, the notion of fluoridation decreases pineal production of DMT. It's only been, you know, three to four years that there emerged any data regarding pineal production of DMT. And uh, that was in rodents. And it was in the fluid surrounding the pineal gland. That was the first real, you know, demonstration of is you know DMT in the mammalian pineal gland. So there were some you know, supportive data, which were you know published in in you know 2013 regarding you know levels of DMT in the fluid around the pineal, you know, not in pineal tissue itself. There are you know some upcoming data which are you know about to be published within the next couple of months in the rodent, which more definitively establish the activity of the enzymes and the genes responsible for you know d m t synthesis in you know both the rodent pineal as well as in the human pineal, so those are extremely new data. And to extrapolate from, you know, those data to unknown degrees of calcification as a result of human exposure to fluoride is still kind of a long ways coming. Still, you know, science marches on and it's important to continue to explore, you know, the relationship of the pineal to DMT, the relation of fluoride to the pineal gland and in your relationship between fluoride and pineal DMT production. One point which is important to make is that the lungs make DMT. That's been you know, known for 60 years almost now. The activity of the genes, the enzyme, DMT formation, those are all extremely active in the lungs, the human lung, the rodent lung. People you know, seem to live normal lives without pineal glands. So whatever contribution of the pineal to DMT levels, you know, seems to be intermittent as opposed to regular. The regular activity or, you know, the regular synthesis of, you know, DMT seems to be in the lungs. Any, you know, conversation regarding the role of the pineal gland omen um, consciousness vis-a-vis DMT production needs to be tempered by the knowledge that the lungs are the the primary you know, site of DMT formation.
1: We're going down the DMT pathway now. For our listeners who may only have uh, you know heard of DMT as a psychedelic or an ingredient in ayahuasca, this is something that is produced endogenously. It's something that comes from our body as well. As, as you just said, it's from the lungs uh, and the pineal gland. But for people who are not as familiar with it, what is its role? Why do we produce it naturally?
0: We don't really know. You know, that's the you know, short answer. Yeah, it's a mysterious thing. Why does the body produce this incredibly powerful you know, psychedelic substance? There's plenty of speculation out there. And the speculation is, you know, more or less based on you know, scientific data, which is known objectively, you know, known to be true. There's a you know, number of tantalizing hints, as it were, with respect to the role of DMT in everyday physiology, you know, biology. One of them is that levels of, you know, DMT appear to increase in stress in lower animals' brains. If you stress a rodent, it'll increase, you know, levels of brain DMT. You know, these are very old data and they need to be replicated with more contemporary, you know, research tools. But that's, you know, one piece of data out there. You know, the other is um, that DMT is transported into the brain across the blood-brain barrier using an energy-dependent process. And there's only a very small number of compounds that the brain treats this way, ones which are, you know, necessary for normal brain function, like blood sugar, certain amino acids for protein synthesis, which the brain's not able to make on its own. So that indicates perhaps the brain requires DMT for normal function. And, you know, normal brain, you know, function means, you know, normal consciousness. So it could be obviously speculative, but it, you know, could be they, you know, certain narrow window of DMT levels in the brain are required for normal brain function. So that, you know, needs to be investigated more carefully, too. You know, like, for example, soon, my hope, people develop knockout mice who, you know, don't produce any DMT. And you can study them, you know, see what their behavior is like. Obviously, you can't ask them what their everyday experience is like, but you could at least, you know, look at their behavior. DMT also seems to be perhaps uninvolved in, you know, visual perception as well. There's some data in the primate which uh, indicate the activity of the gene and the levels of the enzyme responsible for DMT you know, synthesis are quite active in the retina of the primate. It you know may indicate that in addition general consciousness effects of DMT on brain function, it also you know might specifically be involved in you know visual you know, perception as well. You know, so that's, you know, quite interesting. And it it comports with the extremely visual, you know, properties of, you know, the DMT experience. You you know, there's also, you know, some data out there from Hungary, which is pointing towards a uh, neuroprotective effect of DMT when the brain is exposed to conditions of low oxygen. You know, so in other words when the brain is exposed to low levels of oxygen and is struggling to survive, that you know, DMT will protect the brain against the damage resulting from you know, low oxygen levels. So that's an extremely interesting you know, finding you know, because it suggests that in response to low oxygen levels, you know, for example, as you're dying, DMT you know, may be called upon to protect the brain and at the same time, is you know mediating some of the you know, psychological you know concomitants of you know the near death state, you know those data that I was describing, which are I'm about to come out you know regarding more you know fine tuned characterization of human and rodent you know pineal DMT activity. The same group is going to be describing increases in rat brain levels of DMT in the dying state you know so in other words concentrations of DMT in the dying rodent increase that you know also uh, indicates there is you know some relationship between the state of dying and elevated levels of you know DMT which may, you know, mediate the you know, subjective experience of, you know, the near-death state, and also provide some protection to the brain as long as as possible.
1: There's a lot of really fascinating stuff in there. You know, with the near-death experience and that DMT dump as neuroprotective, that's that's really fascinating. I know that that's covered in one, if not both, of your books. So I, we'll make sure we put a link to that in the show notes. We could easily go down that rabbit hole now, but I've got so many other questions that I want to ask you, Rick, and we want to get them in before our time runs out. That answer, you covered a lot of things that I wanted to highlight, that DMT gets into the brain via active transport. You said you know, it takes energy to get it in, and it's one of the few things that the body exerts energy to get into the brain. You know, so that is supportive of the fact that our brains need DMT to function normally. What if we stopped producing DMT? what biological process would be affected? Talking about the potential of a rat study where we can't really ask them about their consciousness, but are there biological processes that we could monitor or, or measure?
0: Yeah, there are, but they're still kind of oblique in the humans. They're not really direct studies or experiments which can stop the production of DMT in humans. You can blockade the areas in the brain and you know the receptors for you know serotonin which are you know mediating the DMT effect there are you know certain types of psychiatric medications which blockade you know serotonin receptors and some of them are actually you know used as antipsychotic medications things like risperidone zyprexa, olanzapine, they blockade both dopamine and you know serotonin receptors and you know they may block the responses to the psychedelics including DMT. There are specific you know serotonin blockading agents which don't have any dopamine blockading effect, you know, things like catanserin and you know ritanserin, you know, which are not available in the US but are in Europe and those compounds you know, seem to block the response to psilocybin you know, which is quite closely related chemically, pharmacologically to DMT. So you could blockade the areas in the brain responsible you know, for the DMT effect. If you give a normal person the anti-psychotic you know, drugs, they, you know, seem to flatten out one's, you know, perception of reality, both, you know, perceptually, emotionally, you know, cognitively. So one could speculate, for example, that if the levels of naturally occurring DMT were, you know, somehow reduced, things in humans, you know, might become flatter, more dull, uh, you know, not as interesting. And, on the contrary, or you know the opposite you know side of the coin, could indicate if you know levels of naturally occurring DMt increase beyond that narrow you know window which the you know, brain may be required you know, to maintain that things become increasingly you know psychedelic i mean you can speculate that in people with naturally occurring psychoses like Mania, schizophrenia, those kinds of things that you know to the extent that those conditions you know resemble in you know whatever way, low doses of DMT being administered you know from the outside, that there could be some you know correlation between increased you know levels of naturally occurring DMT and naturally occurring psychotic states. And that may be one of the ways in which the antipsychotic medications work, is by you know blunting the activity of an overactive you know DMT system. But the you know proof of uh, the pudding you know would be in lower animals. You could develop knockout mice, in which case you know the gene is you know turned off, which is responsible for making you know the enzyme responsible you know for DMT synthesis. You can't, you know, really do, you know, knock out humans in the future, which, you know, may not be that far in the future. For example, if you have, you know, two parents with schizophrenia and it's, you know, determined at, you know, some point in schizophrenia, the DMT, you know, gene is overactive. Would you go in there, you know, to the embryo of a fetus of, you know, two parents with schizophrenia, with an overactive DMT gene, you know, would you go in there with CRISPR technology, and would you edit that gene to lower the activity of you know DMT in the newborn, or you know, the about to be newborn? So it isn't completely within the realm of science fiction, you know, that at you know some point we may be able to uh, you know modify. The activity of you know the DMT you know, system in humans, we're speaking about you know turning off that gene or you know lowering its activity, but at the same time you could speculate about increasing the activity of that gene in humans, which would lead to all kinds of interesting you know, scenarios.
1: Well, speaking of increasing levels, I know we've been talking about endogenous. So let's talk about exogenous DMT general question would be you know what is the end goal when ingesting exogenous dmt or what is it a tool for i know you have used it in some studies with patients you guys have done all sorts of different ways of ingesting i've heard you talk about before you've used smoking you've used intramuscular and and intravenous which which method do you prefer and you know like i said what's the end goal
0: the studies that, you know, we did at UNM, we gave it intravenously because the interest of the study was to replicate the way it's used in the field, uh, you know, which is vaporized freebase. But we really couldn't have, you know, people smoke DMT on a research unit. You know, number one, it smells bad, would freak out everybody on the ward. God only knows what kind of lung effects occur smoking free base DMT, and you cough and it's hard to you know get in all of the vaporized DMT that you might want vaporized you know route is extremely fast you know so we gave it as an intra you know muscular dose in one you know volunteer who had smoked DMT before and he described the onset as you know much too slow compared to the vaporized you know route of administration so that led us to switch to the intravenous route. So you get it all in, there's no coughing, there's no confusion, there's no bad smell, there's no lung damage, those kinds of things. The study that you know, we did was a normal volunteer. They weren't patient population at all. And you know, keep in mind, this was 1990. It was the first new study in humans in uh, the US in over 20 years with these drugs. So we had to be extremely you know, circumspect and you know simple in our study design, which was you know basically, you know, could you give us you know psychedelic drug to normal humans, you know, safely in a you know medically, you know, supervised, you know, setting, and generate a valuable, useful data. We, you know, kept our goals extremely modest, which were to characterize the effects both psychologically and biologically in a group of experienced, you know, psychedelic users given a number of doses of DMT. So that's, you know, basically what we did in the first study. And, you know, then after that, we were interested in, you know, seeing if we could develop tolerance to closely spaced repeated injections of DMT because that hadn't been established, you know, before, even though it is the case with the longer acting drugs like psilocybin, mescaline and LSD even though the volunteers in the study were screened for their you know psychological health uh and weren't you know coming in for the treatment of any disorders they were still convinced of the utility of you know DMT as a tool you know psychological tool spiritual you know tool to expand you know their consciousness as it were they were also interested in, you know, contributing to the greater good. You know, there was a big impulse for altruism in their volunteering for the study, because it had been the first one in a long, long time. You know, so they were convinced of the potential benefit of these, you know, substances, and were keen on advancing the cause for bona fide, above
1: board, you know, legal psychedelic work. I was just gonna say I'm jealous of their opportunity to do it that way.
0: Yeah, it was an incredible time. You know, 1990. You know, George e. W. Bush was president. Things were looking kind of dark, but there was this little, you know, glimmer of hope occurring in Albuquerque, where all these volunteers were getting all this DMT. Where you know things are the darkest, the sparks burn the brightest. So that was you know kind of like an antidote, I think, in you know some ways to the despair that was descending over the world with, you know, the Iraq War and all those things. It took a long time for the research community to, you know, pick up on our work. I had already left the field for almost 10 years by the time any other, you know, study results you know, were published. But since, you know, maybe 2005, you know, there's been a explosion of clinical research with these drugs, especially with respect to psilocybin. It's been used to cause you know mystical religious experiences and normals it's been used in alcoholism it's been used in OCD tobacco abuse terminally ill existential angst despair and anxiety so there is a burgeoning you know field of you know human research occurring with these compounds you know both in uh, the U.S. in Europe in uh, the U.K. in Brazil with respect to these compounds, you know, mostly psilocybin. There's been, you know, one or two studies with LSD. You know, there's a lot of ayahuasca research, you know, coming out of Spain and Brazil. Pharmacology studies, especially the Swiss are, you know, doing a lot of brain imaging and pharmacology, you know, research with, you know, psilocybin. You know, some depression work with, you know, psilocybin in uh, the UK. You know, there's only one ongoing DMT study right now that's occurring in London. It's a you know brain imaging project. There was a German study comparing ketamine with you know DMT, an attempt to you know model pharmacologically some of the you know, symptomatology of schizophrenia. People who use you know psychedelics in the field you know, use them for any number of, you know, purposes, for fun, to experience, you know, pleasure. That's what, you know, Jonathan Ott, you know, calls the ludabund use of psychedelics, you know, just to experience pleasure. Other use them, you know, for creativity. And you can expand, you know, the notion of, you know, creativity to, you know, psychotherapeutic creativity, psychological, you know, problem solving that may occur on your own or with some friends or in a, you know supportive community for spiritual creativity people use you know the psychedelics you know to enhance perceptual appreciation for example small doses going to the museum or you know taking a walk there's a you know movement of microdosing extremely small doses of LSD or of you know psilocybin you know almost like a tonic like you know ginseng or you know something which people are describing as Extremely useful, you know, for depression, work capacities, especially, you know, people in, you know, creative industries, you know, software, you know, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, those you know kinds of areas. Even, you know, the financial, you know, markets, people are using, you know, low doses of LSD every day to increase, you know, their capacity for, you know, problem solving. That's a very interesting, you know, turn of events. They're quite small doses. You know, they aren't, you know, psychedelic at all. If you're looking at LSD, you know, psychedelic response to LSD begins at you know 75 micrograms. You know, maybe you know, like 100 micrograms. If you want a, you know, full-on experience, that might be 200 or you know 300 micrograms. And the kinds of LSD doses that people are using. In the you know, micro dosing you know, regimens, are five micrograms, you know, ten micrograms, quite small doses. You know, but they're taking them every day, as opposed to once a month or once a year.
1: Rick, I know we're running short on time. I have so many other things I want to talk to you about. Let's go, if you will, maybe rapid fire on a couple of these, just so we can squeeze them in, at least in some capacity. <laughs> Thirty seconds or less. Describe the DMT experience for us. <laughs>
0: Well, the DMT experience, well, if you smoke it or if it's given as an infusion through the vein, it starts quite, you know, rapidly within a few heartbeats. There's what's called a rush which is the first, you know, maybe minute of the experience, you know, 30 seconds of the experience, there's a feeling of inner tension, inner pressure, acceleration, both, you know, physical and psychic acceleration. And, you know, that kind of culminates within about a minute in an experience of, you know, separation of the mind from the body. And one's, you know, consciousness, you know, then enters into this world of light, which is extremely deeply, you know, saturated and bright, rapidly, you know, morphing, you know, buzzing visual objects. And oftentimes one experiences a feeling of intelligence within that space, within which one is, you know, relating and interacting in a quite active manner. There's, you know, give and take, you know, there's healing, there's questions and answers, there's, you know, downloading of information. You know, the emotional experience can be up, or it could be down, or it can be kind of neutral. You know, most people describe it as as ecstatic, but it could be, you know, terrifying, or it could be, Surprisingly bland emotionally as well, one of the other striking you know features of the d m t experience in you know most people is the feeling of reality it feels as real or more real than everyday reality, which was a quite a you know common refrain you know that I heard from my volunteers and if you speak with most you know people that have smoked d m t you know that's a you know, fairly common description as well.
1: I think one of the things that is most fascinating to people is the commonalities, you know, shared across accounts from recreational users or or even medicinal users uh, across different cultures. You mentioned that, that spirit, that being, intelligence, entity, whatever you want to call it. I've heard you pose this in a different venue, and I wanted to ask you, why but you said that it would be interesting to pose a mathematical question to those DMT beings <laughs> if they were able to answer what would that tell us right
0: well so that was actually a, a you know suggestion you know by a you know colleague of mine marco rodriguez up in santa fe yeah you know we were discussing are these beings real and if they were could we design an experiment to Establish that. Yeah, you know, so Marco is a super brilliant creative computer, you know, science guy. And he said, well, if we ask the entities to solve a very difficult mathematical, you know, question, Amanda, man, if they you know gave us the answer, then you know that would be support for their you know being external, you know, to the person themselves as opposed to just a generated phenomena. Well, that's obviously uh, depends on, you know, quite a few contingencies. For example, you know, somebody could be a, you know, mathematical savant without even knowing it and, you know, come up with the answer themselves unconsciously. Number two, the entities, you know, may not be interested in answering that question or, you know, they may not be able to, or they may, you know, consciously give you the wrong answer. If you got the right answer, you wouldn't be that much, you know, further ahead. If you got the wrong answer, you wouldn't be any, you know, further behind. So there's another, you know, colleague of mine, a fellow named Andrew Gallimore. Um he's a Brit who is at an academic, you know, setting in Japan. And, you know, last year my co authored an article with him which, you know, describes the theoretical model for giving a continuous infusion of DMT over the space of hours, you know, that's one of the main drawbacks of, you know, the infused, you know, DMT stage or even smoking it is it's extremely brief. I mean, you know, the peak effects occur between two to five minutes and you're down within, you know, 20. You know, so it's all you can do to get your bearings, you know, let alone to like interact or establish a level of communication with one of these intelligence is to ask them a question, you know, for them to think about it and, you know, give you an answer. So the continuous DMT state, which would be available with an intravenous infusion like that, you know, would be one possible tool to start interacting with those beings at a more stable kind of a level. At the same time, if you look at the ayahuasca experience, you know that's kind of a continuous, you know, DMT state, four to six hours. It's you know obviously you know, complicated by the presence of you know the beta carbolines, which allow the DMT you know to be orally active. You know the beta carbolines have got their own you know psychological effects, but still, it's a close approximation of a continuous DMT experience. And I have yet to hear of anybody posing those mathematical, you know, questions to beings encountered in the ayahuasca experience. I guess it's one of those cases of stay tuned.
1: So for anybody listening, if you want to run that experiment, let us know. Rick, they just need to make sure they ask a mathematical (laughs) question they themselves cannot solve, right?
0: Right, right. Yeah.
1: All right. So if any of you optimizers out there want to do that experiment, let us know. But we did not sanction or authorize it. That's the disclaimer.
0: Well, so DMT is a Schedule One drug. It's completely prohibited, you know, to possess, to make, to distribute, to take if it isn't in a research environment or within a couple of well-defined, you know, religions. So otherwise, it's, uh, you'd be, you know, breaking the law if you got your hands on DMT for this experiment.
1: So two final things to wrap it up. Number one, where can our listeners get more of you and your work?
0: Well, they can contact me through my website, which is rickstrossman.com, or they can you know, contact me you know through Facebook.
1: Great. And of course, like I said earlier on the blog post for this, we'll have links to your website, to the books, to the documentary, uh, movie. Any of these studies that Rick mentioned, will have links for you guys. Final question, Rick. This is the question that every guest has to answer. We want to know your top three tips to live optimal.
0: Keep your weight down that's one thing pray it's another thing or you you know learn to pray and you know get enough sleep
1: all right i like it Rick, thank you so much for your time uh, this has been a blast for you guys listening thanks for tuning in again go to naturalstacks.com you'll be able to see the blog post video all the links share the opp if if you found this episode beneficial helpful entertaining Share it with people you know who would benefit from listening and share the Optimal Performance podcast as a whole. Go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. If we read your review on the air, we will get you free Natural Stacks products. All you have to do is email me when you hear it, ryan at naturalstacks.com. That's it. Thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next Thursday. Rick, thank you so much.
0: Okay. Well, thanks, Ryan. It was a pleasure.